uh, Pastor T. She started last week with our series, uh, Loving Myself. I love myself, question mark. And we're learning that we can't be an army. We can't reach people until we're whole people ourselves, until we want what God wants, we receive what he has. And she started uh, the series in a powerful way. And so without further ado, I'm looking forward to part two. Sweetheart, we love you. You're the mom of the house, and we love you. God bless you as you share this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the brief answer to what God's blessing was this week. I mentioned it last week. We are building a house in Charleston, in Somerville, actually. Andrea, you got your wish, okay? Uh, we're coming to Somerville. Okay, and... Um, we, we, we had the design meeting, which is like so fun, ladies. I got to spend three and a half hours picking out every little thing, every grout color, every, 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 every. And it was wonderful. And they came up with a price, and we were like, praise God, hallelujah. Well, we got a call yesterday from our realtor, and he's like, uh, Miss Tracy, I need to tell you something. I'm thinking, okay, go ahead. See? I had a negative expectation, and the Lord's like, don't be like that. And he's like, we made a mistake on the price of your house. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Kevin's in the car. And I'm like, He's like, we overcharged you $13,000. I said, thank you, Jesus. Okay. I was like, he's like, are you okay with that? I said, honey, I will come up there and hug your neck. Okay. So anyway, um, but anyway, and so we are just, we're excited. We're excited. So we'll be in our new home before Thanksgiving. So yay, 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 yay. Okay. Um, Awesome job, Pastor Brad, on the worship. And the, as, I, as you were singing, the Holy Spirit just said to me about this message, the song, there is power in the name of Jesus. And there is power. We need to believe that there is power in the name of Jesus. But here's the deal, what there's going to be power for today. And I'm just claiming it right now. Father, I pray that there's power in your name to take the scales off of our eyes, to unstop our ears, for us to see inside of ourselves the things that we have desperately tried to hide from the entire world, including ourselves. Let it come forth so that it can come to healing today in Jesus' name. And then where the Spirit, Spirit t uh, lead me where my feet, uh, where my feet would never wander. I love that song, Oceans. Spirit, take me where my feet would never wander. That means, that means Lord, take me someplace that I would be scared to go on my own. That my faith would be made stronger. As pastors so many times has told us, our faith isn't grown on the mountaintops. It's grown in the valleys. And so today, it may feel like a valley for just a few minutes. But I'm telling you, it's because the Lord wants to get you to a mountaintop lifestyle instead of a bottom valley, hard time lifestyle, okay? Um, if I could, by the way, happy Mother's Day. And if I could give every one of you a gift for Mother's Day, I was thinking, what would I have wanted when I was a young, young mother, the mother of Clayton Daniel? Jesus, help me. Okay, um, it would have been this. Mothers beat themselves up more than anybody in the whole world. Can we get an amen? We are, we're, we're always looking at the lady next to us and saying, I wish her kids are backed better than mine. They look better than mine. You know, they, they eat better than mine. I had a one child that would just like, when you take them to a restaurant, it was just like food was everywhere. And you're just like, honey, can you keep it on the plate? Um, you know, just things like that. And we're hard on each other. And, and shame comes in. And in case I forget to say this, I, I, I've got my notes here. And I know I don't have this in the notes. And I just want to make sure I don't miss this. The spirit of regret 
is not of God. It is of shame. And I know some of us, even those of us in the ministry, we battle regret. regret. What if we didn't, what if we hadn't said that? What if we hadn't made that decision? Uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Those things will kill you every day of your life. And so right now, just everybody out loud say, I break regret. It's of the devil. I will not receive it. In Jesus' name. Okay. So today, I have entitled this message, The Seepage of Shame. So last week, we talked about living loved and about how our lives would look so differently if we could believe and get the revelation that the Father God really, really loved us and that he could be trusted with our entire lives. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can go on to the media site and find that. And I told you that this week I was going to talk about shame and how the Holy Spirit had sent me, he sent me to Indiana to go back to school and to complete my inner healing. I know that's why I went, to get to the core. Remember in our encounters, we talked about the core of that onion, and he had to get me to deal with the core of the dysfunction of that onion in my life. So today is going to be a little bit more encounterish in that I am going to be giving you some psychological information. You have a worksheet there in your hand that I'm going to be relaying some things because these were the lessons that, that took the veil off my eyes. And that's what I'm desiring for you today. Let me start with Isaiah 54, 4 through 5. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, praise the Lord, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He has called you. He is called the God of the whole earth. So, as I said, I've entitled this message, The Seepage of Shame. So, it was a Monday evening in late January when I opened up, sitting there in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in my mother's little back room, her Florida room, I opened up my workbook, my life skills workbook, to chapter 12 entitled, Guilt Slash Shame. And I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be easy tonight because I don't have shame. I mean, this is going to be super easy. I'm just going to kick back in this chair. You know, they, they can only see my face, so I could have my jammies on, you know, which oftentimes I did. And um, I could just sit back here and be drinking me a Pepsi. And, and those, those, bless their hearts, those girls there in Indiana, I kind of know some of their testimonies, and I'm sure they've got some stuff to deal with. And so tonight's going to be easy for me. Now, why did you think I think thought, I thought that? Well, I thought that because I thought that shame was a spirit or a stronghold that people who had participated in sin, dealt with. That's, that's what I thought. I, I didn't think, well, there's nothing for me to be ashamed of, so, so I, I don't have anything to deal with. You see, I'd been to 44 encounters, as I said last week. I'd taught 42 of those encounters. And every time we would go to the cross about shame, I, I didn't go because I didn't think I had shame. I would minister to some of you about shame and... Um, and I would, I would just think, you know, this isn't, this isn't an, an issue in my life. And so then the, holy, the, the teacher, Denise, began reading the lesson. And this was the first sentence. Victims of abuse have a fragile core. When she said the word core, the Holy Spirit just kind of tapped me right there and goes, you might want to sit up and pay a little bit closer attention. 
So then she had his turn to this illustration in our book that I've given you. So take a look at that. This is the shame-based behaviors, the effects of shame. So I start looking at that, and I'm looking up in the tree, and I'm seeing some of those words, and, and a few of them are, are kind of popping out to me, you know, perfectionist, uh, self-conscious, um, rejected. Okay, I didn't like that whole full of rage. I thought, okay, I lose my temper every once in a while, but okay, I don't know if it's full of rage, okay, I mean, you know. Uh, but now notice this, I want you to look at some of those words. Because I'm looking at some of these and I'm thinking, this is not me. Because, I mean, some of these are very introverted words, like secretive and distant and withdrawn. Well, y'all know I am not those things. But this is what I want to tell you. The Holy Spirit said to me, oh, the, the enemy is an equal opportunity terrorizer. Whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, he can throw shame on you and he can ruin your life. So you better just... Open up your eyes, Tracy, and pay attention. Well, then Denise told us to look down at the bottom, the roots of shame, violations of personhood. And I looked at those, self-esteem, abuse, ridicule, life commandments, unmet needs. First of all, just explain life commandments are what we would call ungodly beliefs, things that we have taken on as this is the way life is, and it's a commandment, and we just believe it, just like the Ten Commandments. Okay, and I looked at those, and I thought, uh-oh, uh, I have all of those, all of those right there. Now, let me just explain to you so you don't miss this, what, what, what unmet needs is. Unmet needs is more of your parents were there in person, but they were not there in spirit. They were absent. It could be that your parents weren't there. Your father left, your mother left. I was watching an HGTV the other day and some girl was going to Australia and bless her heart, she's 41 years old and she is bawling on HGTV about the fact that her mother left when she was 11 years old and she's moving to Australia to get to try to reconnect with her mother. That woman has walked in shame because of an unmet need. So let's all pay attention that this could be. So ask the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, begin to show me if, if I'm on this page, okay? So... I couldn't deny that any of those words were there. And then she got to the questionnaire that she handed out. Now, remember, I did not think that I had this issue in my life. There were 30 questions, and I answered yes to 15 of them. That was an extremely eye-opening event. It was like the Lord said to me, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The bad news is you have a shame-based mentality. The good news is, praise the Lord, we finally have a diagnosis and there is a cure. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes not but to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that I might give you life and that more abundantly. And that night, sitting in my jammies in Spartanburg, South Carolina, the Lord said to me, you have been struggling and feeling so defeated. You have been a Christian since you were eight years old. And yet, I don't know about y'all, but some days I felt like such a phony because I was not experiencing abundant life. I knew it, and I would like try to work myself up into it. And I wasn't experiencing that. You see, the thief has come, and he was coming into my life to, to steal and, and, and kill and destroy my joy. I would go to the altar. Y'all, I'm not just talking about it as a little girl. I'm talking about as your pastor's wife. I would go to this altar. I would repent. I would, I would call out to God, Lord, just change me, rearrange me, do whatever you need to do. And I would have a few days, maybe even a few weeks of peace and joy. 
And then it was like this shroud of heaviness would come back over me. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? You see, the enemy has been trying to sneak into our lives. He was sneaking into mine to kill me, to destroy me. Y'all know, I, he has tried to convince me three times in my life to commit suicide. That, how does that happen to a spirit-filled believer? It's not that God isn't enough. It's that something in the foundation of my existence is not right. He was coming, and the thing is, I was not recognizing him because he was coming as shame, and I didn't think I had shame. Now, during this week's of the study of shame, the Holy Spirit gave me a vision, and I'm going to share it with you this morning, so kind of pay attention. Even the kids can understand this, okay? It's a picture of a basement. Now, I'd never lived in a house that had a basement until I moved to Indiana, so I believe that's kind of, he gave me an illustration of where I was actually living. There was a basement in Indiana. It was an unfinished basement. And the Holy Spirit said, now this basement represents your life. And on a sunny, dry day, that basement is a good place. It's dry. You're, so you're looking down there and you're thinking, you know what? This is some good space to renovate and it can make my life better. So we begin doing that in our lives. We begin renovating. And we're, so for some of us, it would be a game room. For some of us, it would be a sewing room. For some of us, it would be a man cave. For some of us, it would be a place to entertain and have small group. Whatever it would be that would make, give you joy and peace. Now, just think about that being your life. And that space represents, it represents the, the work, the labor of your hands. You have worked hard. You have, you have done everything that you're, you're not a slacker. You're, you're a good worker and you're bringing home your finances and you're, you could pay for this. And the Lord says, and, and you're tithing and you're giving offerings. And this is a thing that you deserve because you have done it all right. And then a storm blows up. I'm talking a really bad thunderstorm. And it begins to rain and rain and rain and rain. You know, the kind of situations that come to, into your life, the kind of things that you just can't understand. You just can't wrap your brain around how in the world is this happening to a Christian. I, I, I thought I knew God. I thought, I thought I knew what was happening. How in the world can this be happening to me? Things that you don't understand. Injustices, disappointments, even tragedies. Or maybe... It's something not so major, but to you, it hits you at a level such as <laughs> you really just missed a very important appointment. You missed it. You're like, oh my gosh. Or you were supposed to give a presentation at work and you bombed that thing. It was terrible. Or at school, you get up and it's just like you could not even remember what you were going to say. Or... You let your emotions get the best of you and you reveal out of your mouth some things that you did not want anybody to know about you. Or you just didn't preach very well at that conference you were just at. And suddenly this basement that once brought joy and excitement and peace to you quickly and suddenly starts filling up with disgusting, nasty water, sludge, and the Holy Spirit said to me, that's the seepage of shame. Life can be going great for you, and then suddenly, it comes in, and it destroys. About three weeks into the shame teaching, 
I had yet another powerful, disturbing revelation. That week, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that even my spiritual foundations had been built incorrectly. I told you, and some of you know, that I grew up in an extremely legal, legalistic church. Um, all the things that, you know, I'll just cut down to this. If it was cute, you couldn't wear it. If it was fun, you couldn't do it. Okay, that's the, the brief synopsis there. But also theologically, who? You know how Calvinists believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. Okay, Baptists, Presbyterians, believe that once you're all saved, you're always saved. Well, the denomination we were in believed you were never eternally saved. You could lose your salvation at any given moment. All right? I know, and that sounds, that sounds terrible. I'm telling you, that's the way it was preached. Okay? We get saved. We believed in two works of grace. You get saved where you ask Jesus into your life, and then you present yourself for sanctification where you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Now, I never will forget. I was probably right about Toby's age. What, about 10? 10 or 11, and I was, at, I was sitting in church, probably right there on the front row where I always was because I was a good Christian little girl, and I always paid attention in church. And the evangelist stood there, and he told this story, and he was using this illustration that when you get saved, you, can't, you climb up to the, the lower limb of the tree. And when you get sanctified, you climb on up to the top of the tree. Because you say, Lord, I want to be closer to you all my whole life to be in your hands as you're climbing up. And let me just tell you, folks, and he's this way saying, let me just ask you, what happens when you fall out of a tree? Do you fall halfway? No, you don't fall halfway. You fall all the way. So I'm telling you right now, when you fall from grace, you're not saved. Wow. I was Toby's age. That is still in my mind. And I'm 54 years old. That when you mess up, little girl, you're not just God's grace covers it all and he still loves you. Oh, no, 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 no. You are bound for hell in the fast lane. I would go to church on a Sunday morning, y'all, and I would be praising the Lord and, and just saying, Lord, I live for you all the days of my life. Lord Jesus, I know I love you. And I would sense his presence. And then Sunday afternoon, I'd go home and my sister would make me mad. And I would yell or scream at her. Now, y'all, I never cussed. And I'm, and here, but y'all, I'm growing up in an abusive home. Imagine, I probably could have gotten beaten really good that afternoon. Go into my room and these feelings of, of rage, of anger coming up against my parents. I go back to church that night and they're preaching on hell. And I know for sure because I had bad feelings that afternoon. I am going there if I die tonight. I am not embellishing this. I'm sure that between the ages of 8 and 29, when we came out of that denomination, I was saved over 150 times. I'm sure of it. So the Lord began to show me, you see, that's shame-based. How many times have I heard, and I don't know if Kevin grew up in Kansas City, it was a little bit different there. Indiana was hard line. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, was said from the pulpit. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Let me just tell you, parents, please don't ever say that to your children. If they've done wrong, then you need to say, you know what, that was a wrong thing you did. And you will need to ask your brother or your sister or your daddy or mama to forgive you, but not, do not speak shame on your children. Do not put shame on them. Shame is not of God. It is of the enemy. So the whole time, 
I'm, this revelation is coming to me. It's being downloaded to me one night in class. And in the midst of this download, Denise, my teacher, makes this statement. Now, I know when, it, when she made this statement, it just kind of went over the heads of everybody sitting there in Indiana. But it came right through the iPad and smacked me right in the face. And she said, and some of you, have lived your whole life trying to be the perfect Christian. You're always at church, having your devotions, praying, teaching Bible studies, obeying all the rules, and you've been doing that all the time. And while you've been doing it, you've been holding hands with the devil. Well, I mean, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I out loud said, and I always feel like I take three steps forward and two steps back. And she said, absolutely, she said, turn to the second sentence of our teaching tonight, which said this, victims of shame show a pattern of growth, strength, and then destructiveness. The reason for the progress and setback pattern is the pain of shame. How many of us have, have been in a service, have gone to a band of brothers, have gone to a women's conference, and just such revelation comes to us and we say, I will forever be changed. I will never go back. I remember teaching Gideon by Priscilla Shire. And, just, and I remember the very last week of that class just saying, Lord, let me never forget what you have done in my life these last eight weeks. It wasn't three months later. Boom. The seepage of shame comes all back on me. So I want to take a few minutes today to share just a small, small portion of the revelation that was revealed about this horrific stronghold in my life. Now, here's the warning. Sometimes revelation is hard to swallow, but I promise that healing follows the nasty taste. Okay? So please listen. I want to read, and I believe on the, on the screen we have, Are You a Perfectionist? Now, there are several, several, there are actually nine different types of perfectionism. And so some of you are going to go right now, oh, I know I'm not a perfectionist because I'm not one of those people that has to have my hair just perfect before I leave or my house is not spotless, believe me, so I must not be a perfectionist. Well, you might want to listen because there's nine different types of perfectionism. The first one is physical perfectionism. You think you must have a perfect face and figure to be desirable and appealing. Achievement perfectionism. You feel it would be terrible to, to make a mistake, to fail or fall short of a personal goal in your career or studies. Perceived perfectionism. You believe that you have to impress people. Now notice, it's perceived. This is not true, but this is what you think. You believe that you have to impress people with your accomplishments, talent, or intelligence to get them to like you or respect you. You are convinced that others will look down on you if you fail, look foolish, or make a mistake. Emotional perfectionism. You feel ashamed of negative and vulnerable feelings such as loneliness, depression, anger, anxiety, or panic. You believe that you should always feel happy and in control of your emotions. Self-esteem perfectionism, you feel inferior to others who are more intelligent, attractive, or successful. Relationship perfectionism, you believe that people who care for each other should never fight or argue. Romantic perfectionism, you find it difficult to form lasting intimate relationships because people are never quite good enough. You become preoccupied with people's shortcomings. Entitlement. 
You get upset when other people or the world do not measure up to your expectations. You may get aggressively angry or frustrated when a train is late, when traffic is slow, or when people do not treat you with sufficient respect. I'm not looking over there, Brad, I promise. <laughs> if Tyler Baird was here, I'd be going, honey, just raise your hand. Okay, anyway. All right. Obsessive compulsive tendencies. Is he okay? <laughs> you feel your house or office must always be immaculate. And you spend excessive. Now, I'm not talking about just cleaning your house. Excessive amounts of time checking things, cleaning, or organizing. Whew, can anybody say amen on that one? Hmm. Okay, next one. I don't, you don't have this one before you or anything, so just, just pay attention. This, I'm not going to read all this, I promise. Characteristics of adults shamed in childhood. Now, li- really, probably pro- promise you're going to listen because this is really powerful. Adults shamed as children are afraid of vulnerability and fear exposure of self. Adults shamed as children may suffer extreme shyness, embarrassment, and feelings of being inferior to others. They don't believe they make mistakes. They believe they are mistakes. Adults shamed as children fear intimacy and tend to avoid real commitment in relationships. These adults frequently express the feeling that they have one foot out the door at all times. Adults shamed as children feel that no matter what I do, I won't make, it won't make a difference. I am and will always be worthless and unlovable. Adults shamed as children frequently feel defensive when even minor negative feedback is given. They suffer feelings of severe humiliation if forced to look at mistakes or imperfections. Adults shamed as children frequently blame others before they can be blamed. Adults shamed as children may suffer from debilitating guilt. These individuals constantly apologize. They assume responsibility for all those around them. Adults shamed as children feel like outsiders. They feel a pervasive sense of loneliness throughout their lives, even when surrounded by those who love them and care for them. Adults shamed as children project their beliefs about themselves onto others. They engage in mind reading that is not in their favor, consistently feeling judged by others. Lisa Turkhurst, the third chapter of her book is entitled, The Woman at the Gym Hates Me. She goes through, it's a total misunderstanding. The woman doesn't even know she's alive. But you see, she has that right there where she projects that feeling that nobody likes me on someone else. Someone as awesome and anointed as Lisa Turkhurst, okay? Adults shamed as children often feel ugly, flawed, and imperfect. These feelings regarding self may lead them to focus on clothing and makeup in an attempt to hide flaws in personal appearance and self. Adults shamed as children feel that they must do all things perfectly or not at all. This internalized belief frequently leads to performance, anxiety, and procrastination. At least two times, if not three times in college. Y'all, I would be within three to four weeks of finishing the semester. And I would figure up that there is no way, even with the final exam, I can pull an A out of that class. So I would drop it. Waste all of that money and get behind on reaching my goals because of that. It had to be an A 
all or nothing. I'm not going to do it any other way. Adults shamed as children block their feelings of shame through compulsive behaviors like workaholism, eating disorders, shopping, substance abuse, list making, or gambling. So perhaps like me, after reading some of those, you understand that you might have a shame-based mentality, that you have a stronghold. So now obviously I cannot spend the next nine hours teaching you on how to do the journey out of shame, but uh, we're going to do just a little tiny bit here to get us started. But the first thing we have to understand is the difference between guilt and shame. See, pastors often told us, that we have a society now that says that no one should ever feel guilty about what they've done. That's not true. Guilt is of God. Guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is a feeling of violation of one's own values and beliefs. That my behavior was bad. My behavior was bad. Shame is a feeling, a painful feeling of loss of respect for yourself. That's saying, I am bad. That's what I'm saying to your children. Thank God for James Dobson, the strong-willed child when I had Clayton, because I know I may have messed up on a lot of things, but I never once said to him, you are a bad boy. James Dobson quickly told us, do not say that. You can say what you've done is wrong. You need to make it right, but not you are bad. Okay? Very, very important. That is shame. You see, guilt can be atoned for because the promise of love is still there. And there can be a feeling of relief. Guilt has a beginning and an end. Let me just tell you, you drive in Mount Pleasant and you follow too closely like I did, and they'll give you a $231 ticket. Okay? But the good news is, after you pay that, it's over. There is an end to the guilt. Guilt can be a learning tool. I now know when I drive into Mount Pleasant, I don't follow too closely. I go by the speed limit. And I make sure I'm using my turn signal when I'm changing lanes. All of those things are learning tools that happen because I did something wrong. And I learned from it. But shame blocks learning. Shame is about the person. Some shame words are worthless, withdrawn, despair, revenge. And this is very, very important. Please hear this. Shame and rage are interacting where there is rage, there is always shame. Rage comes from feelings of helplessness. Rage attempts to hide shame. I'm going to tell on myself, when Kevin and I first got married, whew, we were both totally messed up. But because I had come out of this abuse, and remember when we talk at Encounters about inner vows and judgments, I'm sure as a daughter being beaten, that I made a vow that nobody, when I get out of this house, ain't nobody ever going to do that kind of stuff to me again. Now, not that pastor ever laid a hand on me, but when we would get in a fight, he was, he's good at words, isn't he? he can, he's very convincing. Okay, he would begin wording me, and I would feel like I was backed into a corner. Not literally backed into a corner, but I would feel like that. You ever had somebody say, like, you feel like you're, they're doing that with you? To their, with their words. Okay, and I'm telling you, I did not know rage was inside of me until I got married. And that's sad to say because he didn't deserve it. You see, that rage that had been there as a child, unable to defend myself, came out. 
And sometimes it would come out in words, and sometimes it would come out me swinging and fighting. Okay? And I'm just telling you, rage is of the devil. Rage is of shame. Okay? And some of you are saying, oh, God, I'm, uh, that's me. Okay. But there's hope. Let me get to that. We're going to get to that. Okay? Rage and anger are not the same. Anger is a natural emotion. Anger, all of us get angry about things. Sometimes we need to get angry about things because that's how things change. And when you get, you get angry with your husband about something, and, and if it's just anger, you say, you know what, this obviously is an issue, and we're going to need to sit down, and we're going to need to work this out. And when you do work it out, it connects you even closer together, right? But when you're full of rage, rage only pushes back. Rage only disconnects. Rage isolates you. The very thing that you are wanting, and that is somebody tell me you love me, because that's what shame really is based on. You're needing somebody to tell you that you're okay and that you're loved. But sh the, sh the rage inside of you pushes everyone back. And then once again, you're left with a feeling that nobody loves me, and the devil is laughing all the way. Shame versus guilt, real quickly. Guilt is I made a mistake, I did a bad thing, my behavior was wrong, I have sinned. Guilt exists in the system of accountability, okay? We can be accountable. Pastor Brad is, is accountable to the pastor, and there's been times the pastors had to say, you know what, eh, I didn't like that song so much, okay, you know, okay, let's, let's not do that one again. Okay, now, you see, that's not even guilt. It's not like you did something wrong, but it's just like that's a learning thing. And you just go, okay, okay. But see, Shane would love to be right there going, God, I am such a loser. I never do anything right. He's never going to like what I do. See, that's what the devil would love to do. It's a learning place. Guilt can be learning. It can be growing. It can be deepening our values. Shame, I'm a mistake. I'm bad. I'm wrong. I am, I am my sin. And that leads to rejection and rigidity and us feeling despair. So how are we going to get out of this real quickly? Three things. We've got to face it, we've got to trace it, and then we're going to erase it. So I'm believing that the Holy Spirit here today in just this few short minutes, if you have a spirit of shame, a shame-based mentality, the word was even used with the Holy Spirit said to me, a shame-based existence. Because, see, you're just existing when you live in shame, you're not living abundantly. You don't have a shame-based life. You have a shame-based existence. And I'm breaking that. So if you recognize that today, good, you faced it. Now, some of you are just like me, and you've been trying so hard all of your life to be godly and to be obedient and to be righteous. And yet all this time, you've been holding hands with the devil. So now what we have to do is we have to trace it. I can't do this for you. Only you can do this. And that's why I ask at the beginning of the service for the Holy Spirit to come and to take the veil of our, off our eyes and begin to reveal the incident or incidences that have happened in your life that have brought in that shame. Some of you were not abused and you think, well, I have no reason. I mean, good Lord, a lot, a lot of bad stuff happened to her. I mean, I can understand why she's shame-based, but why should I be shame-based? Listen, it doesn't have to be, and in our teaching we learned but for, for a whole week we talked about, it doesn't have to be that you were sexually molested or anything like that. It could be that just every day of your life, it's like a dripping faucet, somebody said to you, you ain't going to ever amount to nothing. Nobody's going to love you. Are you kidding me? I remember the day my dad 
my boyfriend broke up with me and like went to my girlfriend Jamie and started liking her at church. My, I went home crying and my dad goes, well, I don't blame him. Good Lord, she's a lot cuter than you are. You see, it's just day after day. You're not pretty. No one will love you. You're not smart enough. You go to college? Are you kidding me? Well, the only reason we're sending you is so you can find a husband. Just drip, drip, drip. And it, and it bores a hole in your soul that invites shame to take up residency there. So what I want us to do, turn to the back of your tree. I can't do this for you and we're not going to take the time to do it in service today. I wish it would be, you come up here, I'll lay hands on you, we'll cast the spirit of shame off you and it'll be over. Whoo, wouldn't that be nice? But you see, it didn't happen in one moment. It's going to have to be removed because you're going to have to call it what it is. The enemy, see this is, I just want to tell you, this wasn't in my notes. The enemy right now is saying, well I'll tell you right now, they, they aren't going to do that. They're not going to take the time today or next week to sit down and do that. And he's telling you right now, there's no sense taking that sheet of paper home because you ain't going to do it. You're not going to do that. You're not smart enough. You're not, you're not diligent enough to do that. And that's what he's hoping. But this is what you can do if you desire to be free. Number one, what is a shameful event that you want to work through? You have to be specific. And there may be several. So you may have to go through this several times. What reactive behaviors do you do because of this shameful event? Think about the behaviors that you, that you use to distract people from getting close to you or that you use to avoid your emotions. Remember, these behaviors are not only a result of your shame, but they also keep you in shame. What are the feelings that lead to your reactive behaviors due to shame? If you identify and deal with the feelings, you have a better chance of stopping the behavior. Let me just quickly give you an illustration. For me, the feeling that I have is that I will be misjudged, that my motives will be in questioned. And so my action, back up in number two, what is my behavior, is I perform for people. Anna, what, I just think, and see, I, I'm projecting my emotion onto you. I wonder what Anna wants me to be, because see, then I'll be that. I'll, I'll perform, I'll, I'll say what she wants me to say, I'll say what, what does Robert want me to say, I'll say, I'll say that. Okay, and I do that, not anymore, I have done that, because of the feeling was, you will misjudge me. You won't like me because you'll think I'm something that I'm not. And I want you to know that I'm good, okay? Face the shame. How did I learn to become so shameful? I tell you why I'm like that. It was because my father would set me up. He would put things in our, in, 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 a, in, in, place for in a place that I would find them or do them or put me in a situation that I would do the wrong thing and then he would catch me he would set me up and then he'd go you did it didn't you you did it and then he would beat me there was a time that my dad accused me I mean if you've heard this at encounter my dad accused me of stopping along the side of the road and kids are in the room and doing something inappropriate with boys in a car on my way home from college, 
Daddy, no, no, Daddy, I didn't even get in the car. I, was, I stayed in my car. That's not what I did. He said, I know you did it. And when you get home, I'm going to beat you with an inch of your life. And he did. So you see, when things like that happen to you, it causes you to think that people are never going to trust you. They're always going to misjudge you, which then causes you to act out. The last thing is you have to translate the shame into pain. You think, why would I ever want to do that? Because some of you in this room are stuffers. Now, I'm not a stuffer. You all know that. I'll tell you anything. But some of you are stuffers, and you stuff everything down deep inside. You've got to bring that up. This is where it could get hard. You're going to have to bring it up, and you're going to have to take it out of the shame category, which is I was bad, into the I did something bad. Maybe you committed adultery. Okay. That doesn't make you an adulterer. You committed adultery. Now, boom. I did that. I repent. Which you've probably repented of 150 times by now. And the Lord says, it's gone. It's gone. Then you have to forgive yourself. Now, we're going to do that. If that does not work, then the last, last step is you get really intense. You write a letter. You write a letter to the person that wronged you, that hurt you, that abused you. You tell them exactly what this paper tells. I don't have time. I'm running out of time. You tell exactly what you, how they did, how it made you feel, how it made you parent, how it, made, how it affected your marriage, how it affected everything. You do not send the letter. And then you forgive them. You must forgive them. There's only freedom when you forgive them. We got to bring it up, and then we have to forgive. And last, last but not least, if it was you that did the thing, you write it down. You say, Lord, you know, this is what I did to my kids because when I committed adultery, this is what happened. This is how it affected everybody. And then you say you're sorry, and then you forgive yourself. And then you turn it over to the Lord. Let me just tell you, there is a way to get off the shame train. But I want to tell you, the enemy will try to come back and go, tickets, tickets. Because this week when my husband was gone to New Orleans and I was, provide, and I was preparing this message for the last three days, oh, he showed up in the apartment at the Aberley. He showed up with everything I have ever done wrong as a pastor's wife. Every word I shouldn't have said, every way I shouldn't have reacted, he showed up. And at that moment, as I'm teaching the seepage of shame, I literally had to just like go and slam the door and say, you're not coming in, not today, Satan. I'm not saying that once you do this, he'll never knock on the door and say tickets. But you will then know what the scheme is and how to fight him. Amen. Pastor? Amen. You know, getting whole isn't just coming to church. Getting whole is taking what you receive at church and finding some time in the week and pulling that out of your Bible or your notebook or wherever it is you may be, maybe a devotional time, and uh, saying, okay, I'm going to walk through this. I hope, I hope you take advantage of that, and you do that, and you begin to take your steps to freedom. Let's stand, shall we?